Thank you, Janice. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Am I on? Am I on, right? Okay. Good. It is so great to be with all of you this morning. Like Janice said, I'm a Wednesday nighter, so it's kind of nice to shake things up and see what happens on Tuesday mornings. And this is amazing. There are so many of you and such great energy. I love this. So I'm really, really pleased to be here with you guys this morning. And of course, as you all know, you know, the last few months we've been working our way through um, Ruth Chow Simon's uh, study on preaching truth to ourselves. And this week, if you, you know, did your homework, she kind of asked us to um, put all the ingredients together and make a stew, right? Kind of bring everything together. And those ingredients that she's been talking about, of course, are resting in God's character, rehearsing your identity in Christ, responding in faith, and remembering his provision. Now, I, uh, I sincerely hope that all of us have learned through the course of this study to speak more kindly and, and with more biblical truth to ourselves. I, I really do believe that I have. And so now, as we're nearing the finish line of this study, I would like to just talk about one component of that that I find especially important. And that is just simply this, just simply remembering. Remembering when God called us out of darkness, remembering the times when God made a way for us, and remembering the purpose that God has for our lives. Now, I, did you guys enjoy this study as much as I did? I, I absolutely loved this. I, I loved her artwork through, through, um, throughout this entire book, and I was just so blessed by kind of the creative and flowy way that, that Ruth's mind works. She painted such beautiful images for us of, of gardens and seasons, you know, as she, as she worked through Colossians and talked about preaching truth to ourselves. And as I stand here, I have to confess, one of the reasons I appreciate that is because I am not much of an artist. Not at all. I am very much more of a concrete thinker. Which is why, as we uh, talk about remembering today, I'm going to be talking about rocks. <laughs> so let me start off by telling you a sweet story about a rock. So this past August, my husband and I had to do something really, really hard. Um, Janice mentioned we've got boy-girl twins, and we had to send them off to college for their freshman year this past August, which, whew, was really, really hard. Anybody feel my pain? Yeah, some of you have probably sent kids off to college. Here they are. That's Natalie and Sam. Praise God, they're at the same school. <laughs> and so as the summer went on, just... The anticipation of having to say goodbye was just building up, and it was, it was just kind of torture. And as we got closer to that August date, we kind of panicked and planned this last-minute family trip, just like grabbing onto those last moments with them as a family, right? So what we did the week before we took them to school, we flew to Boston, we rented a car, and we drove up the coast to Maine into Acadia National Park, which is where we are there. Anybody been there? Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? Anybody have that kid that's always making faces in the family pictures? <laughs> or teenagers where the family pictures are always at that weird angle? So there we are at Acadia. And while we were in Acadia, my daughter Natalie, so she's got the brown hat, she had the most just sweet and incredible thing happen to her. What happened was her boyfriend Michael and his family had been at Acadia literally just days before us, just three or four days before we were there. 
And being the sweet and clever boy that he is, he decided to leave behind a gift for her to find when we got there, knowing that we were just three or four days behind. So um, he was kind of scheming with my youngest, Vivian, and he found a place and he left this gift for her and then he sent her a text and told her where it was. We didn't tell Natalie about it, but Vivian knew, you know, where we were going to be able to find it. And um, so we had this whole plan, right? And again, he's a clever boy, so he decided to leave it on Bar Island. Anybody, you know, who went to Acadia, I don't know if you even know where Bar Island is. I didn't ahead of time, but here, let me explain. So here we are standing on Cadillac Mountain in Acadia National Park, and if you look down the hill, there's a town there. I don't know if you can see the town, but that's Bar Harbor. And then just off of Bar Harbor is that island. That's Bar Island. And what's really cool about Bar Island is that when the tides are in, it's totally cut off from the mainland by, like, I don't know how much water, but it must be deep because we saw huge yachts passing between the island and the mainland there. But during low tide, the water totally recedes. And here's what happens. It leaves behind this broad, like, strip of land. It's about a half mile. And just this, this broad beach of totally dry ground, so you can actually walk over the island on dry ground. And people do. People wait for low tide, and they come you know, in droves just to walk over to the island. So that's what Michael and his family had done when they were there before us. And on the far side, there's a beach. That's the first thing you come to on the island. So what he did is, while he was there, he found a flat stone, and he carved a message on it for Natalie. And then he left it in a place where we would be able to find it. There was like a kind of a tree off by itself and a piece of driftwood. And he, he put it in the sand. And then he, he built up a rock tower around it. And then he told Viv where to find it. So the day came. We were out there. We waited for low tide. And we all walked over there as a family. Didn't tell Natalie what we were doing until we got over there. And then when we got over there, Vivian let her in on the secret, right, and told her where to find this thing. Well, Natalie had absolutely no trouble finding this thing that, that Michael had left behind. So she ran over, she found the tree, she found the, you know, the fallen thing, and then you know, the, the stone tower had fallen down. So she dropped to her knees and she was pulling stones away. And then she came up with it. She knew that this was her gift because she found this stone that he had carved a special message on for her. You guys want to know what the message was? You ready? It was this. He said... Hi, Nat. <laughs> and it wasn't a wordy message, but it didn't need to be, because for her, it may well have been a sonnet. You can tell she's been crying there. Quite honestly, I'd been crying too. Like, just, it was such a sweet moment for her. Because in that moment, like, she knew that the love of her life had left that behind for her, right? And even though they were 1,500 miles apart, at that time, she felt his presence right there on that beach with her. But more than that, like just looking at that rock, she felt seen and remembered and so treasured and so loved. And of course, she brought the rock home with her. It was her favorite souvenir of the whole trip. And now she keeps it in her dorm at college, like this, on her desk next to a picture of the two of them. Now, the two of them go to different schools in different states, which is really hard. But despite the distance between them, that rock reminds Natalie every single day of the love that they have for each other. 
and remembering a time when Michael did something beautiful for her in the past brings her comfort and gives her confidence in their future together. Isn't that sweet? Don't you wish you were 19 again? (laughs) So that brings me to my first point today, which is (laughs) remembering when God called you out of darkness. Now, that story of my family walking on dry ground through waters that had been parted and reviving on the other side and receiving a message on a rock, does that call to mind anything from Scripture? Anything? I know, sometimes God gives you these metaphors and you just, it's cringy, but you have to use them, right? So I am, of course, referring to the Exodus when God called the Israelites out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness and he gave them his law at Mount Sinai. Probably looked something like that. So it looks kind of scary, right? Kind of intense. Well, it was. Exodus 20 tells us that the Israelites here were absolutely terrified when they heard God's voice speaking to them from that giant rock. However, despite the drama of this moment, um, I would like to actually argue that this was a lot more similar to this scene than you might think. Are you seeing it? No? Not so much? Well, there at Mount Sinai, God did for the Israelites what Jesus does for us. He rescued them out of darkness, and he invited them into a relationship with himself. Now, it can be hard, looking at the lightning and the smoke and everything, to see the tenderness and the love of Jesus here, because we kind of admit it. We kind of have a tendency to think of Old Testament God as being kind of harsh and judgmental and a little scary, and, you know, when we think about Jesus, we kind of think of love and grace and that kind of thing. However... Paul doesn't let us get away with making that distinction, does he? We've seen it in our study, if you guys remember. Paul makes it clear that the Father and the Son are one and the same. Um, In Colossians, as we studied, he tells us that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then he goes on to say that for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In other words, if you want to know who God is and always was and always will be, all you have to do is look at Jesus. Therefore, this scene here, despite the the lightning and the smoke and the earthquakes and the, the screaming, is actually a powerfully intimate moment between God and his people. So why am I emphasizing this? Because in a minute, I'm going to ask you to recall your own Mount Sinai moment. But first in order to help kind of see it, we need to understand who the Israelites were at this point. And hopefully that'll help you see the grace of Jesus in this scene. So just a little background. This is um, Exodus 19 and 20. Um, This is, Moses tells us it's the third month after the Israelites have been led out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness. So it's very early on in the 40-year Exodus period. And the Israelites here are disoriented and lost, and they are whining incessantly. But it's hard to blame them, because they really didn't understand what was going on. Two important things to kind of help you with context here, two things to remember. First of all, the Israelites had just come out of slavery in Egypt. Do you guys know how long they'd been in Egypt? Like how long it was from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus? It was 400 years. They'd been 
enslaved for some portion of that, um, and they've just been immersed in this culture that didn't know God at all. Because the Egyptians had their own religious system, just like all the rest of the ancient Near East. Um, They had their own religious system, but it had absolutely nothing to do with God. They believed that there were gods and goddesses for everything. So if you guys heard Cheryl a few weeks ago talk about um, when she recently um, experienced the Balinese Hindus and how they were seemingly spending their entire days just trying to appease their gods and care well for their deceased relatives and that kind of thing. That's a good picture of what the ancient Near East would have been like. So they were spending all of their time and energy trying to serve and appease their false gods. And the Israelites were slaves in that culture for 400 years before God called them out. Then the second thing I want you to remember is that at the time of the Exodus, the Israelites didn't really seem to have much to go on to know who God was either. Um, I don't know if you've ever really thought about this, but um, it's kind of key to understanding this scene. We don't know much about what happened while they were in Egypt. However, we do know for those 400 years, they were living in a kind of exile. They were away from the land that God had promised Abraham centuries earlier, just waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. And at this time, God had not yet given them most of the things that would define them as his people and give them um, something to organize themselves around. So if you think about it, at this time, they had no written scriptures at all. Genesis hadn't even been penned yet because Moses would be doing that in the wilderness. They had no religious festivals to celebrate. They'd just been given Passover, but they didn't have the, the things that they would use to organize their year. They had no synagogue, no temple, no tabernacle yet. They had not yet been given the Ten Commandments or the Torah to tell them what God expected of them. So in short, it seems like they didn't have much of an idea of who God is and how to be in relationship with him. So here's what I'm getting at. There was a moment before, or there was a time before this moment on Mount Sinai when the Israelites were lost in exile, not knowing who God is or how to be his people, and they were living as slaves in a culture that didn't know God and certainly wasn't looking for him. Does that resonate with any of you? Does that sound familiar? So thinking back to a time before you placed your faith in Jesus, can any of you guys relate to the Israelites here? And then listen to this. When God did rescue them and he brought these lost and confused people to him at Mount Sinai, here's what he said to them. Listen to these words. He said, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you, fully o- or if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here, in spite of the lightning and the smoke and the scary appearance of the scene at Mount Sinai, God is actually doing something gracious and loving and so intimate for the Israelites. Kind of like this but on an infinitely larger scale. Here's what he did. He came down from his place in heaven, and he met them in the wilderness. He called them by name. He introduced himself as the one who had rescued them out of slavery. He claimed them as his treasured possession, and he invited them into relationship with himself. 
Now, if you have given your life to Jesus, there was a time before you knew him when he was watching over you and protecting you, just waiting for the day when he would call you out of sin and darkness and into relationship with him and call you his own treasured possession. Paul would describe it like this. We saw this in Colossians. He would say, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. This scene at Mount Sinai became the moment that defined the Israelites as God's holy people. And today, I'd like to challenge all of you to meditate on your own Mount Sinai moment, that time when God delivered you out of sin and darkness and called you his own, before you were even seeking him. I encourage you to solidify it in your mind and just mentally carve it into stone. And remember it often as you preach truth to yourself about who and whose you really are. Now, (laughs) Nat wasn't the only one who had something really amazing happen to her on that trip this summer. Um, Like I said before, (laughs) August was the time that all moms dread, right? I mean, it was was awful leading up to that day when we were going to send our kids out into the world. And I was nervous, and I was anxious, and I was just clinging to those last days with them. Thus, the last-minute family trip, right? But then God stepped in, and he made a way for something truly just incredible and unexpected to happen to me. So a little background on me. I graduated from college in 1995, and since then, I've kept in touch with only three friends, my three closest friends from college. They're uh, Kristen, Kelly, and Sean. and in the years since we graduated, you know, we've, we've all spread out all over the country. We've moved around and that kind of thing, and, and life happens. So we don't see each other very often. We stay in touch. But it has literally been 17 years since all four of us were in the same place at the same time. Now, Sean lives in Boston. And I knew this, of course, when we were um, first planning the trip, but I really didn't intend to try and catch up with him because I know it was going to be a fast and furious trip, and I really didn't want to take away from our family time. So I hadn't planned on reaching out to him. But then, two days, 48 hours before we got on that plane to fly out there, I just woke up with a burden on my heart to reach out to him. Um, he and his family have had a really, really hard time this past year, and I just felt like you know what, I should reach out to him and let him know we're in town and see if we can get together with them for dinner. And maybe I could, <clears throat> in some small way, bless him and, you know, kind of help him. I haven't seen him in 14 years. His wedding was the last time I saw him. But apparently, as I was having those thoughts, God actually had something else in mind because I texted Sean, and within moments, I mean moments of hitting send on that text, I found out that all three of my friends We're going to be in Boston at the same time that weekend for different reasons. 48 hours before we left. Um, Just can I remind you, this was a last-minute family trip on our part. We hadn't been planning this for months. I had no idea they were going to be there. This was one week before we were taking my kids off to college. And again, it's been 17 years since we'd all been together at the same time. So to make a long, long story short, I ended up spending an hour or two with each one of them during the very brief time that we were there. But here's the weird thing. None of them saw each other. They all missed each other 
because they were there for different reasons, but I was able to catch up with all three of them. Now listen, during my college days, I was definitely not pursuing God. Um, <laughs> I was walking in darkness, and I had not had my Mount Sinai moment yet. But as I was reflecting on this on the plane ride home, I just felt this peace in knowing that even though I hadn't been pursuing God, he was with me. He knew where I was the entire time. He was watching over me. He was bringing people into my lives to love me during that time. And now that I am walking with God, I am able to see his hand at work all over this. This just had God's fingerprints all over it. Think about it. Could you guys pull together your three best friends from all over the country with 48 hours notice if there isn't a funeral or something? I mean, it was just impossible odds. And what happened, it just, it brought me such tremendous peace. It was like God was absolutely ministering to my mother's hurting heart at that point in time. Just as we're getting ready to send my kids off to college, it was like he was just telling me, you know what, Jill? I was there with you before you were seeking me. And wherever my kids' hearts are, you know, he was going to be with them too. He was going to guide them, and he was going to protect them, and I could trust them in his care. And I can't even tell you what kind of peace that brought me going into that really, really hard week. So that brings me to my second point, which is, Remembering the times when God made a way for you. And here we're going to go to one of my absolute favorite stories in the Old Testament. We're going to go to Joshua 3 and 4. And if you're not familiar, here's the scene. Here's, here's what's happening. It's at the end of the Exodus period, so this is approximately 40 years after Mount Sinai. Je- or Moses has died, and Joshua has been named the new leader of the Israelites. Likewise, the entire first generation of Israelites has died. The generation at Mount Sinai, they have all died off, and a new generation has grown up to take their place. And this generation has spent their entire lives in the wilderness learning how to rely upon God. Now, this generation in Joshua 3 is, um, along with their new leader, they're camped at the, the banks of the Jordan River, and they can see the promised land across the river. Like, they are there. They are at the end of their wilderness wanderings, and they are finally about to cross that river and go into the promised land and take possession of this land that, that God had told Abraham centuries earlier that they were going to possess. Can you imagine the anticipation and the excitement? So as they're camped by the river, waiting for their marching orders, God did something kind of unusual and unexpected. Here's what Joshua tells us. Joshua tells us that leaders were sent through the camp to tell the people to watch out for the priests to set out carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And when they saw the priests set out with the Ark, they were to fall in line and move out behind them, which doesn't sounds so unusual, right? Except that if we go to Numbers 2, we see that when the Israelites were in the wilderness, they always traveled with the priests and the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of their pack. So when they would be on the move, six tribes would go out ahead of it, then there would be the priests and the Ark of the Covenant, and then six more tribes would travel behind them. But here, as they're about to enter into the Promised Land, God changes things up, and he effectively told the Israelites, follow me, which I think is so cool. So the big day finally arrived, and Joshua tells us this amazing story. 
Listen, he tells us, so when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a great heap, or in a heap a great distance away, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. How cool is that? Just talk about arriving in style. But does it remind you of anything else? At the end of the Exodus, or this is happening at the end of the Exodus, as the Israelites are leaving the wilderness. However, it seems to be a repeat of what happened when they entered into the wilderness 40 years earlier, right? Have you ever caught that? When the previous generation uh, of Israelites actually entered into the wilderness through the parted waters of the Red Sea. Some important distinctions, though. As we just talked about, the first generation of Israelites that came through the Red Sea that you know, had fled Egypt didn't know who God was yet. They were about to find out. But they weren't in relationship with him yet. So when they crossed the Red Sea, they crossed it with confusion and in a total panic. Now this generation that crossed the Jordan River definitely knew who God was. They had spent the previous 40 years with him in the wilderness, picking up manna six mornings a week for their food. They saw his presence with them 24-7 in the pillar of fire at night and the cloud during the day. They literally organized their corporate life every time they stopped around the tabernacle, right? They organized themselves around it. Um, they were very much in relationship with God at this point. So when they crossed the Jordan River, they did it with confidence and purpose. Another thing to notice here is that God himself, through his presence in the ark, went out into that river and literally made a way for them through what would have otherwise been an uh, impossible obstacle. The people also then, just like that, passed right by the ark as they were crossing over the Jordan River, right? And as they did, they knew exactly who it was who had opened that path for them, who had gone before them and made a way. Isn't it like that sometimes when we're in relationship with God, like with me and my friends? Then reading on in chapter 4 in Joshua, um, he tells us that um, once they got to the other side, he tells us that he appointed one man from each of the 12 tribes to go and grab one of the large stones from the middle of the Jordan. So one of the stones that would, just a few minutes earlier, had been under rushing water. And to stack those stones on the riverbank, kind of like... Kind of like that. But why? Joshua says that in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4, that these, these stones would serve as a sign among the Israelites, and that when future generations of children asked what do these stones mean, their parents would tell them this, that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed into the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So here again, we see the importance of remembering. It was important for the Israelites back then, and it's important for us now. 
For those of you who have been walking with the Lord for some time, can you recall times when he has gone before you and made a way through an impossible obstacle? Maybe sickness or trouble with family and friends or financial woes or work troubles? I know I can. I can recall many times like this in my life, some big and some small. And I would love to be able to stack up stone towers like that in my yard for every one of those instances so that when people come to my house and they ask me about them, I can tell them the stories of God's faithfulness in my life. But my husband is the one that takes care of all of our lawn needs, and I don't think he'd appreciate it. And I'm pretty sure that my homeowners association would not allow it. So instead, the Holy Spirit inspired me to start a journal. I'm a terrible journaler. I don't like doing it, but I was pressed to start a journal that just records all of those acts of faithfulness and love and mercy in my life, each one of those times that God went before me and made a way. And I'd like to encourage you guys all here today to do something similar. But first... I'd encourage you to pray and meditate on it and ask the Holy Spirit to show you those times that you might not even be seeing. He'll show them to you. He wants to be known by you. And then record them and treasure them in your heart. And as you practice preaching truth to yourself, tell yourself those stories over and over and over again. Because reminding yourself of God's faithfulness to you in the past will give you confidence in your present circumstances and courage to face those future challenges. Now, a few years ago, I discovered a podcast called The Unfolding. Anybody know what The Unfolding is? Oh, I love The Unfolding. And I started walk, uh, listening to it while I was walking my world's most adorable dog. Um, and if you don't know what it is, each episode is a different person telling an incredible story of God's faithfulness in their lives. Every story is unique, featuring people from different parts of the world, different walks of life, different ages, different circumstances, different religious backgrounds. But the common thread is God entering into the person's circumstances and changing their lives. And each story has an incredible impact on me. Some bring me joy. Some make me cry. But all of them remind me of the magnitude of God's goodness and kindness and creativity as he works in our lives. And all of them strengthen my faith and help me to see God's hand in my own life by hearing other people's stories. I never get tired of listening to them. In fact, I have to confess, I've become a bit of a testimony junkie. Which brings me to my third point, which is remembering the purpose that God has for your life. So I'll wrap this up today with one final image from Scripture, and this is one of my favorites from the New Testament. It's short and sweet, but it's very powerful. Um, in his first letter, Peter paints this picture. He says, you, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Living stones... First, we saw at Mount Sinai as the place where God meets us, right? And then we looked at the stones in Joshua as a, a way of remembering his faithfulness. But here in Peter, we actually become the stones. According to, to Peter, our lives become the building blocks for God's kingdom. But we're not just living stones, though. If you heard, Paul said that we are to be a holy priesthood. And if you recall, back at Mount Sinai... Um, God declared that Israel would be for him a kingdom of priests, right? So it's important for us to understand that God rescued and called us 
for a purpose. It wasn't just for our own good, not just our own benefit. We actually have a job to do. We are to be kingdom builders and his witnesses on earth, to spread the gospel and the love of Jesus throughout the world. And an important way that we do this is by sharing the stories of God's goodness in our lives, like this. These, these are all stories of my life, but God is the subject and the star of each and every one of them. So they are meant to be shared to help strengthen and encourage others. This is how God uses us to build his kingdom temple. If you remember, stones are used in a building, building a structure. Um, they're there to, there we go, to support the others, to keep the others from shifting and falling, and to connect, to make something so much bigger and more beautiful than any one of those stones just standing by itself. So friends, as we wrap up our truth-filled study this week, I would like to encourage you to remember, remember the stories of God's faithfulness in your life and share them with others. Maybe start by sharing them in your small groups today. And like living stones, we will be built together into God's spiritual house and his kingdom will spread on earth. Will you pray with me? Lord, we don't ever want to forget your kindness, goodness, and faithfulness toward us. So right now, help us to remember the ways that you have shown yourself faithful in our lives. Fill us with gratitude that flows over into every area of our lives and strengthens the faith of those around us. It is for your glory that we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.